Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Uh, Today's guest is Brian Munger, who ranches in north central Nebraska. Brian has a diverse ranch business and is the bull developer for all of the PCC Nebraska bulls and is also actually a cooperative producer himself. So Brian, welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Thanks, Jared. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this this conversation. I had the opportunity to be out at your ranch for one of our evaluation or bull evaluation days a year or two ago now, and I uh, was kind of intrigued. I love that country. It's it's a beautiful area and, and got to hear a brief bit of your farm history, but not much, but I've been looking forward to learning more ever since. And so if you wouldn't mind just starting us off with your history of, of your ranch, your family's history and ranching and how you got to the area you are today. Sure. How far do you want to go back, Jared? Yeah, yeah, as far as you know. (laughs) Well, actually, uh, we can trace our family back on the Munger side. We can go back to the Mayflower in 1620. Wow. Um, Yes, my my family did come over on the Mayflower in 1620. That would be not the Munger actual name, but my great-great-grandfather's wife was a Bundy, and and her family came on the Mayflower. So... Hmm. The first known Munger in the United States was Nicholas Munger, and that was the year 1646. So we have been in the in the United States for quite some time, and and just for some history, the the Munger name means merchant. Hmm. Uh, so hmm. so the history of our actual ranch here was uh, my great great grandfather was Rufus Seth Reed Munger, and he actually filed what they called a timber culture in October of 1883. And that timber culture was a, an act that was passed by Congress in, in 1873 that uh, gave homesteaders uh, an additional 160 acres of land if they agreed to plant 40 acres of trees uh, when they first started that. Now in 1878, they, they amended that so they only had to plant 10 acres of trees. But that's what my great-great-grandfather did here in in 1883 was that timber claim. So did he already have a homestead and that was adding on to his homestead you're seeing? No, I mean, that's kind of the way the timber claim was set up originally, but but that's not the order of events in my history. Sure. He did the tree claim first and then in, uh, well, I believe it was 1901, then his son Charles actually did homestead on the other side of the road, um, directly west of where my great great grandfather had done the tree claim. So, so we have a tree claim and a homestead here on our home place. Uh, about 1930, my grandfather Bill Munger took over the ranch from Charlie, and then in uh, February of 1982, then that's when my dad bought the ranch from my granddad. And at that time, it was uh, a small dairy, and they raised pigs and chickens, probably only about 30 milk cows at that time when my dad took over. But uh, just to date it a little bit, they were still using buckets. Uh, <laughs> if, if you know what buckets were, that they, they hung underneath, and, and that's where the, 
the cows were milked into that. And then you had to haul the buckets into the tank. So when my mom and dad took over, then they upgraded everything and upgraded to a class A dairy. We started milking roughly 70 cows, but didn't stay with that for a long time before I got to high school. uh, So in the mid, like 86-ish, my folks got rid of the milk cows and we just, from then on, strictly concentrated on the beef cow side. So I I actually graduated high school in 1993. I went to uh, college in Lincoln, Nebraska at the university. I got to participate in the glory years of the Nebraska Cornhusker football team. So, <laughs> yeah, at least you can say you have them. I went to the University of Minnesota, and <laughs> I don't. I I talked to one person at a homecoming game who was I don't know whatever eighty something years old. I quite old, and he said I was at the very last game. The Gophers went to the Rose Bowl, and I said I or I said I wanted to go, but he couldn't afford. He said he'll go the next time, and he's been regretting it ever since. So <laughs> at least Nebraska <laughs> has that. So. Yep. Yep. So graduated in 1997 from uh, the University of Nebraska with an animal science degree and uh, came home and started uh, ranching with my dad at that time. As far as my family, I'm married. Jill and I got married in 1995 while I was going to college. She had already graduated with a vet tech degree, but uh, we have six kids. Four of them have graduated high school currently, and and I still have two that that are at home. Courtney's a freshman and Shane's a an eighth grader. So my oldest son, Ethan, has a four-wheeler shop here in, in the town of Springview. And hmm. Kylan, my oldest daughter, graduated from Shadron in May of 2021 with an ag business degree. So she's currently here helping us here on the ranch and, and working on developing uh, our meat business. I'm curious, just because you have one of the most impressive knowledges of the history uh, that I've heard of, of some of my guests so far, have you heard stories of kind of how your family made it through some of those transition periods from like the open range to the more homesteaded and in, in that, and then the 1930s and the Dust Bowl and, and maybe even the 80s? I mean, I'm just curious with your knowledge, if you've got any stories that you've heard from your family that would be interesting or something maybe to learn from. Yeah, not not so much from the transitions. I It was interesting. My, my great-great-grandfather that did the timber claim here actually went to Oregon first, and then for whatever reason, decided to come back and they actually went to Iowa and then settled here in, in north central Nebraska, just on the edge of the Sandhills. So the transition between my granddad and my dad was based partly out of necessity. That was in the 80s. Uh, my grandmother had passed away with a heart attack kind of unexpectedly. So granddad couldn't handle everything on his own. So then that's when my folks... Uh, started buying the ranch then from him and, and started taking over. So right in the heart of the 80s, and I was just young enough that I don't really remember the 80s as being hard and and sure. bad. But, yeah. uh, you know, we didn't do a lot of things. We rarely went to town and rarely ate out. Or, and we got one can of pop when we went to the sale barn once <laughs> a year. So, sure. so I'm sure things were tighter than what I realize, but don't have many stories to go to go back that far. As for the transition out of dairy into beef, do you want to talk about kind of the enterprises of your ranch as they sit today and maybe how they evolved from the original dairy enterprise to beef and and all of the different aspects of your business now? Yeah, pretty much uh, after they got out of the dairy, they started expanding the beef herd. We were actually able to purchase some land at that time that was contiguous 
to our current ranch. So, so right now, between what my dad still owns that I rent from him and what I currently own, we're about 5,000 acres. My dad had built that up. When I took over the ranch from him was about 450 cows. All owned? All owned. Yep, correct. Pretty traditional. When I was growing up, we calved in, in February. You know, my my dad would much rather calve when it was cold and frozen than when everybody else around here calves in March and April. And it was muddy and cold, wet snows and cold, wet rains. And he liked to calve in February. We had a lot of... Uh, tree shelter belts around here and we had some barns and so we could go through the through the barns if we had to but I got into high school and and then on into college and I got to really just thinking about the way we did things and how and we spent all summer putting up hay then we would haul all the hay back to the house in the fall we'd spend all winter feeding it and then we'd spend the spring hauling manure back out and so when I got home from college, just a lot of this just didn't make sense to me. So in 2000, I actually went to the Ranching for Profit school. And after returning home from that, we started making a lot of changes, just particularly with our calving dates. When my dad calved in, in February, we always sold the calves in January. After we started moving our calving dates and looking at how calves were selling, we could calve in May and still sell calves in, in January for the same dollars as our February calves. And, you know, it just, it didn't make a lot of sense to uh, spend the extra money to calve that much earlier. So we, starting in, in 2000, uh, we were moving our calving date back, you know, a couple weeks every year. And actually, we ended up going clear to July 1st. Oh, wow. That is quite the transition. <laughs> yes. Uh, a lot of people said we couldn't do it, but that looked to me like the best time. I'd By this time, I had not only been through Ranching for Profit and part of their Executive Link program, I'd also went to Dick Divens' low-cost cow-calf nutrition school. And, you know, some, based on some of his uh, daylight hours and, and latitude and longitude, stuff it looked to me like july 1st was the best time for us to be calving and we did that for a couple years and then and then i uh had the opportunity well a guy had contact a neighbor had contacted me about managing some cows for him and uh, it came at a time when when we were looking you know for some more income and it, it just worked out really well but he was calving in may and one of the reasons we were interested in his proposition was because he did calve in May. So I didn't want to have two different calving seasons, May and my July calving deals. So we actually moved our cows back to May and uh, calved both groups then uh, at one time during the year. How, how did you make that move of calving date? First of all, just logistically, it's a little easier to move them back than it is to move them forward a couple months. Uh, was did you hold them over? Did you yeah. slowly over time move them? No, nope. no. We actually uh, just turned the bulls in as soon as we started calving. And I think the first year we moved over 60% of the cows moved up almost a full two months. Wow. Just by, you know, calving in July when we were, they were butterball fat, you know, when sure. they calved. The uh, 
we'd already reached our, you know, June 20th, the longest day of the year, and the, the daylight was starting to go downhill. So it was not uncommon, you know, 20, 21 days after calving. And for sure, by 30 days, those cows were cycling. It it really didn't take very long at all to move them back to May. Mm-hmm. And we, we left the bulls in longer those first two or three years following that. And then uh, about year four, then we we cut them off at 45 days. So uh, whatever was still straggling at that time went to town. Sure. And when you made that transition, you talked earlier about how your, your history was a lot of making hay all summer long. When you moved your calving window back, were you able to shift how you wintered cattle and reduce that workload of feeding hay? Yep. We, uh, in fact, the first year, I leased all of my dad's equipment and we didn't use it. So we actually, my dad ended up having a farm sale and selling all of his equipment uh, mm-hmm. a couple years later uh, because I wasn't using any of his stuff. And it didn't didn't make any sense for me to lease it if I wasn't going to be using it. So we had some carryover hay left from, from prior years. So we, we took that in. Uh, and then after that, I was just, I bought some hay when we needed it. And it just kind of depended on, you know, on the weather. But we did, we did graze almost entirely through those next following years. Well, that's kind of the, <laughs> the dream situation, it seems like. And, and is weather, winter weather an issue that, you, I mean, in that area? Or is it a, a kind of an area where you're able to do that pretty consistently, like nine out of 10 years or something? Snow, I haven't found to be that much of a problem. It's, it's the ice that we, that we struggle with, that the cows struggle with when we're, you know, get a snow and then and then it warms up to 40 or 50 degrees and gets that ice crust, then that's when our cows struggle. So, but I don't remember winters now like they were when I was a kid, you know, we would have three day blizzards and not be able to get out. And it's, it's not that way anymore. There's a lot more, you know, warm days in the winter and, and the snow melts off and it doesn't stick around the whole winter. Like I remember as a kid. So, Last kind of question on that transition, or at least last one in my head at the moment. <laughs> we'll see where that goes. Is the cows that you had and the cow size, did that change uh, ranching for profit? Did they kind of help you maybe think on different type of cow or or did you did you at all make an, a change at that point? Yes. After college, I did quite a bit of AIing. AIed most all of our cows for several years. And so, yes, I was conscious about frame size and uh you know even going through the the major bull stud ai catalogs we would i would make sure and look at at smaller framed bulls not that we had got into small cattle by any means but uh i had made an effort to to maximize to to cap the the frame size on our cows through this whole process you were making a lot of changes. Did you actually end up seeing, was, was what they were telling you true? Did you start to actually see some changes in maybe lifestyle and bottom line and, you know, profitability and, and stuff or, or was it, was it pretty stressful or did it all kind of fall into place? Like you maybe had hoped. Yes. All of that. Um, <laughs> it, it was just a huge learning curve, uh, for us. And, and I made a lot of mistakes. Uh, I learned that, one, you can't starve a profit into your cows. There was a period of time when I went through there that, you know, we just, we did nothing for supplements or, or feeding of hay. And, and, uh, 
that that's a learning curve. You still have to take care of your cows. You still have to take care of your land. And, you know, so there's sometimes a fine line between being a good steward and, and being crazy. And sometimes I flirted with that line quite a bit. <laughs> I guess if you're never pushing the envelope and pushing that line, you never really finding where, you know, making progress either. So that is correct. Yes. Yep. And knowing what my capabilities, I mean, Wally Olson's always telling me you got to know yourself and, and what you can do and, Mm. and what you can handle. And that's, you know, that's part of, part of my whole learning is, is just getting to understand my own self. That's interesting. I think that's probably important. And I mean, when on our farm here, when we, we were raising organic crops and cattle and, and a big part of you know, making finally a switch to moving more towards grass and livestock management even was just like, let's really have a conversation. What do we want to do the rest of our lives? And it certainly wasn't running ca- or running crops and running equipment over, you know, cultivating all summer long and, and making hay for our cows and stuff. Let's let's reevaluate. And yeah, if we had never maybe made that conscious decision to think about, is this possible to run a business that we want instead of just a feeling, maybe an obligation to have, we never would have started making a transition where we're at now. Yep. If I could go back a little bit to, uh, you know, the transition between my dad and myself, I just put a plug in for my dad. You know, 2002, I took over the complete management. We leased the ranch. I leased the cows. I leased uh, the machinery from him. And just for perspective, I was 27 years old and my dad was 48. That's pretty unheard of in a lot of the ranching world. I sold Mormon's feed right out of college there for a couple years. And, and when I'd go visit with ranchers, there was a lot of times granddad was still the one in charge. Dad had never wrote a ranch check and grandson was there wanting to take over, but dad hadn't even taken over yet. So, so for my dad to be in a position uh, at 48 years old to not only turn over management, and the, the ranch to me, but to be in a position financially for himself where he could turn that over. Uh, I just, I give kudos out to him because there's not many, not many ranchers that are willing to do that uh, for their sons. Can you share how he did that? I mean, that's a really good point is just, I mean, first of all, just the financial capability of being able to do that, like how he, he must've done something intentional to be able to give up the reins on the operation and stuff like that. But then also the mental and you know willingness to to give that up yep kind of what precipitated it somewhat was my dad's always had uh back problems and about that time he he'd been to three different orthopedic surgeons and they'd all told him he had a herniated disc in his back and and he just have to live with it you know till he couldn't take the pain anymore and then he'd have to have back surgery and it it kind of got to that point he couldn't uh Mm -hmm. sit in a tractor he couldn't sit in the pew at church. He was, you know, ready, ready to be done with the pain. And so he actually had back surgery scheduled. And, and so I was at a point I was ready, you know, to take over the management. I wanted to, I was excited and, and wanted to do that. And, and he was to the point where, you know, physically he was struggling and thinking if he was going to have back surgery and his vertebrae fused together, he was going to be out of commission for an extended amount of time ended up, he actually got a second opinion from a neurosurgeon. And to make a long story short, he had a cyst in his back that they ended up cutting it out, 
uh, in the morning and he came home that afternoon. It wasn't even, he didn't even have to stay overnight. Um, so it was, uh, so for your listeners out there that have any health issues, always get a second opinion because it, <laughs> it really does matter who's looking at you and what they're looking for. So that kind of precipitated the, my taking it over. Uh, I was ready and, and he wanted to be done. Um, but after, you know, after he got the cyst cut out of his back, then he was, he was able and, and willing to go back to work. And, and I told him that I said, dad, if, if you want the ranch back, you know, Jill and I can do something else or whatever. And he said, no, Brian, he said, you want a ranch. This is where you need to be. And, uh, I'll just step back. So my dad stepping back wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. Uh, it was actually my mom that was, she had the biggest love for the cows and, and she was actually the one more resistant to step back actually than my dad was, but she did. And, uh, she let, she let me take over and, and, uh, and I just, I, I'm really thankful for them and, and their being willing to do that. So following that, my dad actually worked for me for a couple years and then, uh, He'd always had a, a desire to be a, a pastor, so he actually went with uh, uh, an organization called Village Missions and became an associate pastor with them for several years, just going to churches that didn't have a full-time pastor and filling in for them until they got a full-time pastor. So he spent uh, several years in Oregon and Colorado and and then a small church uh, just south of us here in Nebraska for for a while. And so, you know, that's kind of where God was calling him, you know, out of the ranch into, into ministry and, and how I was able to step in and take over management of the ranch as well. Well, that's just an all around really cool story. And it says a lot about your dad and, and maybe kind of gives a little more context to how this whole transition, both the management of the ranch and, and actually the operations of the ranch, you know, over the years, it sounds like your father was a very open-minded, willing to listen and, and look at different opportunities and different things. And, and I imagine that that passed on to you as well. Yeah, we were actually, you know, one of the first ranches in the area to start doing any cross fencing. And, uh, you know, we just kind of found out every time we, we put up a cross fence, we almost doubled the production of that pasture. And so... Wow. You know, my dad was was very involved in AIing, and we we put in a lot of miles of pipeline so that we could start doing more of the cross fencing. So, so yeah, for my dad was very progressive, and uh, you know, always looking to see how he could do things better. Well, I. <laughs> we're 26 minutes into this and I've already got like a whole, I feel like we could do a whole podcast on ranch <laughs> transition and probably should in the future. Cause I know that's a big important topic and, and it would be good to hear your perspective on that, but I do have other, other questions too. So we'll have to discuss that again in a, in a future thing, but kind of where we, where we were at when we kind of stepped back to, to look up to at, at all you've done so far was you just took on these cows from the guy who calves in May. Yep. Maybe talk about that or in managing other people's cattle or the custom cattle, leased cattle, uh, you know, some of the, up till this point, you had owned all the cows. Now you're trying maybe sort of a different structure. Yep. So in 2008, I started working with these two gentlemen and, and uh, they, they had rented some ground close to where I 
we were already currently ranching and he had two boys that were supposed to be taking care of it, but they were heading off for college. So he was looking for somebody and, uh, you know, after asking around, my name was one of the names that, that was brought up to him. And so he gave me a call and, and we were able to, to work out some details and work out the deal. And, and it's just been a, an interesting, almost like a marriage with working with them. We started with 200 cows and some leased ground that he had, that he was renting. So I just kind of took over management and then, uh, it's, it's grown since then to, uh, we're running about 600 cows for them and they bought some more ground uh, and I manage that for them. So the, the cool thing is they are completely hands off. I, I take care of all the management, all the day-to-day decisions. In fact, there was probably a time period in there for five or six years. Neither one of the two partners were here to look at anything. They, I mean, we would talk and wow. text and call, but, but they never... You know, I would send them cattle to the feed yard, the calves or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. At, at that time, we were, you know, because we calved in May, I would wean the calves in December and background them for them, take them back to grass. And then we, these two gentlemen actually own a feed yard so that the yearlings would then go mm-hmm. back to the feed yard. But uh, just been a very cool relationship working with them. And they supply all my equipment, you know, as far as feeding their cows and so it's been a it's been a very cool thing just networking with other people and uh, being able to expand my boundaries without a lot of risk because I they own the cows and the equipment and and the repairs and and I get to do the work and take care of the management side. Yeah, and I was kind of wondering if you could talk more on just what you're saying there because a lot of people maybe don't have the ability to come into a family ranch or something and whether it's leasing cows on leased ground or managing cattle for someone else, uh, you have a unique perspective of doing both. What would you say some of the advantages and disadvantages to each are, the pros and cons to owning your own cattle versus managing somebody else's and managing versus you know owning? Yeah, well, when I, when I think about managing somebody else's cows, generally, in my mind, just the way I'm built or whatever, I mean, I take care of their stuff first, and if something has to suffer, it's usually my cows. I mean, just just the way I am. I'm, if I'm going to take care of something for somebody, that it's going to get the best that I have. So, you know, we uh, we don't intend, you know, to be in in this situation the rest of our lives. You know, at some point, we want to uh, continue to build our own cow herd back up and and uh, be be on our own, if you want to say that, but. But just the way the uh, the situation turned out, being able to work with them has just given us a, a lot of new opportunities that we probably would not have had if we had not met these gentlemen. I've always thought or felt it's not really how much you know. Sometimes it's it's who you know, and and that's made a just broadened our horizons, you know, a little bit. Being able to work with them and and take care of their cows. Now that. That is interesting and uh, a neat opportunity that seems like is probably never not. I feel like a lot of people probably think these opportunities, it's great when somebody finds it, but they'll never happen to me. Uh, was there, I mean, were you engaging in your community or how did these 
individuals happen to come across you in the first place. A, a lot of times when you dig into these stories, it's it's not just mere luck or random <laughs> happenstance. It was it, it might be, but it might also be like a you know a, a result of a, many years of some sort of engagement or getting your name out there or something. Do you? Yeah. Well, remember what I said. It's not what you know; it's who you know, and and that's generally you know, how things work out, but it was, uh, they had a, a guy working for them that actually came to the same church that we attend. And so, you know, when these gentlemen asked him for some, for some recommendations of some people, he gave them three names and my name was at the top of the list. And so, you know, I was the first one he called and, and we, we were able to just hit it off when we, I did not know, you know, this gentleman with the cows, but when we met, his first question to me was, do you love what you do? And I was kind of surprised by that question. But he said, I spent 20 years working for the Department of Roads for the state of Nebraska, and I did not love what I was doing. He says, I had an opportunity to buy into a feed yard, and, and now I get to manage that, and I get up I wake up every morning excited about what I'm going to do. So I want to know, are you excited about what you do? And so, you know, ranching is what I've always wanted to do. And so, you know, honestly, I could tell him, yes, that's, this is what I love. And this is why I get up every morning. And so we've had a, a great relationship ever since then. Oh, that's really neat and insightful on their perspective to ask a question like that. I mean, he could have just said, you know, yeah, asked about your credentials and your managing cattle and everything, but a lot of it, I suppose, comes down to that passion. Because if you don't enjoy what you do, you're probably not going to put it, yep. put all your effort into it anyway. Even if you do know what you're doing, so yeah. And one other kind of unique thing with with him was when when he first called and asked about me doing this, he said, uh, "Well, I asked him how you know what kind of a deal he wanted to work out," and he said. Uh, you figure out what you want and then we'll talk. And so, you know, I spent a couple, two, three weeks going over different scenarios of, you know, how do I, how do I charge somebody that lives in, in another area for taking care of these cows in my area? And so, you know, I talked to a lot of different people and some of my university uh, friends and people. And, and so I came up with, with three different plans for him. You know, we could either do it by the head, you know, by the hour, or I can't remember what my third option was. And so, so when we met and I told him I was ready. And so we met and I, I laid out my three options and, and he said, well, what do you want to do? And so, so he actually gave me back the option of how, how he thought, how I thought we should, you know, be compensated for taking care of his cows. So you know, just like I said, pretty hands off on their part, but the trust has been there uh, through all of that. Otherwise, I don't think we would have gotten along as well as we have if they didn't trust what I was doing. Yeah. And you probably could have, I don't know what you ended up deciding on, but had you come out and said, you know, probably all these options and here's the one that makes me the most money that he, he gave you <laughs> the opportunity to give him, a, you know, show him who you were. <laughs> yeah. And actually what I told him was, I said, if I was you, this is what I would want. I would want to do it per head per day. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't know if I'm mm -hmm. a fast worker, slow worker, whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, this sure. way you can budget every month. 
you know what it's going to cost you based on the number of cows that I'm taking care of for you. So he did a little figuring on his calculator and he said, yep, that'll work. Way we went. That's awesome. Um, What other aspects of your ranch business are there now? We talked about your own cows and your transition with the cow herd. You talked about now this management of another man, uh, individual's cows. Uh, What else is there that goes into your ranch business? Uh, Currently, you mentioned in the introduction that we develop all the bulls for the Nebraska sale for Feral Cattle Company. So that started in uh, 2017. So we currently develop all of the bulls for for Feral Cattle Company for their Nebraska sale. And this will be our fifth year uh, doing that. So with those, we get we get the weaned bull calves in and the end of January and develop them, you know, background them for the rest of the winter. They go to grass and then uh, we get them ready for the sale come, you know, October. What what it's been in the past. just to throw a little wrench into things, the Nebraska sale has changed this year to uh, December 4th. So I'll just throw that out there for your listeners as well. December 4th in Valentine, Nebraska. Well, I'd, I'd be curious to hear that more on that development of the bulls because probably, and, and I don't know the entire makeup of our listeners, but probably a lot of them buy their bulls from a mainstream producer, a local producer somehow, and is developed in, in one way, right or wrong, you know, but maybe share more in depth on how these bulls are developed on your ranch and what makes them unique and, and how, I guess we can get into later how you select in the evaluation of those bulls, but uh, sure. talk about the development of them. Yep. Uh, when they come in, you know, they've been weaned at the cooperators place for uh, about 45 days. So because we're selling these in the fall, you know, we're not pushing these bulls at all. I mean, my goal, you know, for the winter time and even through uh, the summer, you know, we're only looking for a pound and a half of gain, you know, on these bulls. We just want them to uh, to grow structurally so they'll be solid and ready to go breed cows for our customers. So we're not pushing them at all with any grain. They do not get uh, any starch of any kind. So our our ration is going to consist of uh, some soy hull pellets and some soybean meal for protein and then uh, grass hay. And that's what I feed them for the, for the winter time. Um, then we'll go to grass in May and, and they're on grass and we rotate through some pastures with the bulls, depending on conditions of the grass, depending on how fast or slow we need to, to rotate them and just try and get them looking as, as best as we can uh, for the customers uh, come sale day. Was that a pretty major management philosophy mindset change from managing cow-calf that were maybe more of a low input or, I mean, how did that, that that had to be a bit of a, a, a transition or a change? Yeah, one thing that, that I didn't really factor in was I was trying to manage them more like yearlings because they were yearling bulls, but being a bull, they still had a much higher nutritional requirement than a yearling steer. And so, you know, my first couple of years developing them, I, I was figuring, you know, how many acres would it take to run a yearling? And uh, it seemed like we'd, we'd go through and it was always taking more grass than what I thought. And until I finally realized, you know, these are yearling bulls and have a, do have a higher nutritional requirement. So, 
you know, started allocating a little more grass to them. And, you know, it wasn't just as simple as running yearlings either. We were, we bring the bulls in every 45 days and weigh them to make sure that they are gaining, you know, then, then Kit and his crew come and do their evaluations. So, you know, more, oh, what should I, I mean, just more management, just having the bulls in the right place at the right time so we can do the evaluations and, and then, uh, mm-hmm. shortly after evaluation, then we bring the bulls back in for video day and, and just several things like that, that, you know, it was much more, much more management to it than just say running a, a herd of yearlings. Sure. But at the same time, it's also allowed us to meet a lot of other people and, and the same thing. It's, it, it's the people that you meet and the experiences that, that you have that really, really make this life fun. It's, it sounds like networking is definitely something you, you value and, and learning from others. And um, I'm curious because you've mentioned now grass management a couple of different times in all of these different enterprises. Would you talk about that more in depth? And maybe I'm also kind of curious on the bulls. Are you able to manage them in large groups like maybe is ideal for cow calves or are there issues with bulls? But And then you can get into kind of the, the rest of the cows and the, the, the rest of the herds and how you manage your grass that may be different is that's different than how you used to, or how a lot of people in your area manage their grass. Yeah, pretty much everybody in our area is predominantly just a continuous set stock grazing uh, paradigm. And, you know, even when I was in high school, you know, my dad started putting up cross fences and, and putting in pipelines. So we had been rotating cows, you know, for quite some time. And so uh, what I would say in our, we're just on the very edge of, of the Nebraska sand hills. I don't even really consider us sand hills. We do have sand, but we also have gravel and we have good dirt and we have clay. So we really, our area is a, a huge transition area east to west from sand hills on the west to uh, good farm ground on the east. And then even north to south, uh, you know, we're, we're right on the South Dakota border. And so, you know, South Dakota is, has quite a bit of gumbo clay type soils and, and we have some of that as well. So management seems like it can sometimes be somewhat tricky because we have so many different soil types and, and things, but it, it still comes back to getting the grass, getting the cows on the grass and then getting them off and, and giving it a good rest. Probably what I would say in our area, a typical set stock operation would be in that eight to 10 acres per cow for five months with our rotation and stuff. We were, I was figuring down in the five and six acres per cow for a five month and even sometimes a six month period. So I, we really did see the benefits to uh, cross fencing and rotational grazing in our area. The bulls, uh, we don't run them in all in one herd. I, I know that's what I would really like to do just due to, to Kit's encouragement and, and knowledge from raising bulls for a lot of years. We, we do split the bulls up into smaller groups just from a social aspect. And so they're not riding and, and uh, fighting all the time. Just kind of split that up to, to minimize the disturbances that way. Now that makes sense. And, and it's, I suppose it is probably a little bit frustrating when you look at the, obviously the the efficiency benefits and the grass management benefits of putting large groups together. But uh, that was, that was kind of why I was curious is 
you know, we see bulls fighting even with our small herd, you know, our small bird bulls group of bulls we got here at the ranch in Minnesota. And I can't imagine when you start talking hundred plus bulls in a group together that it would get a little bit, a little bit iffy. So <laughs> that's interesting. I, Jared, I do run all the bulls together in the winter time. You know, we put them on, on 160 acres at a time with a lot of hills. And so they get, mm-hmm. you know, lots of exercise in the winter time and, and get a chance to, to build those muscles and, and not just lay around and get fat. Sure. On the grass management, a couple of times in this, you've kind of mentioned things that maybe come out of observation and not just a systematic plan of move through paddocks every three days across everything or something. I mean, is there an observation aspect to your management or is it more systematic in your, your rotation? Some of both. We try and, and plan where each group is going to be, you know, in the spring, but then it still takes boots on the ground because because things change. I mean, we've had three mm-hmm. really wet years prior to this year, and then, uh, you know, it just quit raining last fall, and, and we didn't get much rain this summer. So every year is so much different, and you just can't you just can't mark it down on the calendar and go by that 100%. It has to, you, you've got to be out looking at your grass, not just where the cows are or where the bulls are, but looking ahead and seeing what you have ahead of you. And it just, it makes it so much easier to know what you have when you're rotating uh, through your pastures. Cause you know, you know, when you were here last, but you know how many pastures you have ahead of you and, and approximately how much grass you have. It's just, it to me, it makes a lot of sense and it helps ration things out and, and you know where you're at versus, you know, just dumping cows out in a pasture because this is how many cows we've always put there since grandpa was here. Yeah. Is there something else? Is there anything else that we haven't talked about yet that you would say is an important aspect of your business, your, your ranch business enterprises, or just keys to your success? Uh, a great wife for one. <laughs> and then, uh, and then family in general. I, like I mentioned earlier, we have six kids and each one of them is, is an integral part of what we do. And, the other thing is they're all different and they all have different personalities and, and interests. And that makes, uh, when we have family meetings and things, it makes it, it, it makes it so much more valuable because they all have a different perspective. And we still try and have some family meetings, even with my adult kids that, uh, have their own jobs because they still own some cows here and, and they're still involved on the weekends and, and different things. So just getting their perspective and, and their energy because they're younger than me. And I look at them and I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not too far away from being 48 years old. Like my dad was, am I going to be in a position or be willing to turn over management to, uh, to these guys uh, and be able to, to move on to a different role? That's something that's always in the back of my mind as well. I was kind of curious the same thing. <laughs> yeah, we don't have that all planned out. You know, right now they each kind of have their own desires. They still like the ranch and, and want to be here, but they also have their own uh, opportunities as well at this time. So just that's a that's an ongoing process and and stuff that Jill and I need to work out as far as, you know, how the how this ranch will transition in the future. And earlier you mentioned one of your daughters is helping with the direct marketing of some meat products too. Is is that uh, 
an enterprise that's relatively recent? Yeah, I'm going to back up just for a minute and, and talk about school. I went to the university and I have an animal science degree, but I've told all of my kids when they graduate high school here, they have to leave for at least a year. They don't have to go to college unless it, college is required for what they want to do, but they need to get out and gain some other experiences. And then if they would like to come back, dad's not going to provide a free lunch for them. They have to bring something back with them that's going to add value and add cash flow to our ranching operation. And so one of one of our ideas, and sometimes we sit down and just have brainstorming ideas on what other enterprises we could add or, you know, do here that would add value to our operation. And, and so a, a meat business is one thing that was brought up. So in, in 2019, uh, we started processing our first animals at a USDA inspected plant. And so to add some value to some of our animals here, we're making beef jerky and beef sticks and selling some hamburger. Uh, so yes, rather new 2019, but uh, something that's starting to grow. And, and Kylan, my oldest daughter, has kind of been the, the brainchild behind that and, and the one that wants to make that work. And, and she's been done very well so far. Just off of the things that you're marketing, uh, sticks, jerky, and ground beef, is this kind of out of a goal of adding a premium value to maybe some of those undervalued animals on your farm, or like cows, or, or are you using you know fat steers yep. and marketing some of those as well? Or? Uh, once in a while, we'll do some steers, but, but yes, predominantly adding value to open young cows or mm-hmm. heiferets that, that don't have a calf, adding some value sure. to, to those animals, yes. And they're, they're good eating. No, for sure. We we uh, tried the same thing as well and, and sold quite a bit of it, but ended up with quite a bit extra when kind of hit the year point where we shouldn't uh, decided not to sell it anymore. And we've been enjoying it ever since. So yeah, it's a, it's definitely good eating. And I have my, it's a good tractor snack, I'll say. Yes. We're still doing a little tractor work. Yeah. But, yeah. The inventory management is uh, the challenge that we run into as well. And yeah. just, and then with COVID and processing, we were very fortunate because we'd already started this process before COVID. We had already booked out yeah. a year in advance. Uh, so we had our slots lined up for last year. And then our processor, you know, told me this year, I'm only going to allow you to have the same number of, of processing slots that you did last year. So that kind of, even though we were trying to grow the business, you know, you still have to be able to get them processed and, and get the meat ready. So so there is a lot of challenges on the inventory management side. Yeah, definitely. That's one of our biggest struggles with it too, especially going coming out of a year like COVID where demand was insane is the question of how many of these people will be interested when there's not a fear of stores being empty and, you know, should we plan based on last year's or the year before that or somewhere in between or somewhere completely different? It, it's stressful. And that's the big challenge along with processing that a lot of people are talking about. And I guess it's maybe good to know that we're not the only ones struggling with it, but uh, <laughs> hopefully we can find our way through soon. Yep, exactly. Well, good. I, I really appreciate you sharing your story today, Brian. And uh, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you'd like to share with the listeners? Well, kind of our ranch mission statement, if you don't mind me sharing that, is is a quote from Zig Ziglar. 
And Zig Ziglar says, you can have everything in life you want if you will just help enough other people get what they want. And so we've kind of made it our our goal here at the ranch to be a, a servant and to serve others, whether it's developing bulls for a feral cattle company or managing cows for, for the two gentlemen or providing uh, beef in our meat business for, for someone to enjoy. We just... We're trying to uh, to help other people get what they want and just to, to be a servant. I really appreciate that. that. That's a really, really insightful thought. So thank you. Um, as we wrap up, my last kind of question for you are two questions. One is, um, are there any resources, books, podcasts, conferences, anything that you would recommend a listener of this dig into if they're looking at doing similar stuff to what you've done? I always encourage anybody to listen to any Zig Ziglar stuff that you can. I know Zig has passed away, but his his motivational speeches and stuff are so. Uh, his goal setting process is has been a big a big thing in our operation, and we're not where we need to be, but but we're striving. So Zig Ziglar, anything by him, Earl Nightingale would be another motivational speaker that we listen to a lot. And ranching for profit, that was a, a huge thing in my life that, that uh, helped me set up working on the numbers, even more so than just the cattle side of things. Just the, the business side of ranching for profit has helped us out a lot. Bud Williams and Wally Olson and their sell-by marketing and, and cattle handling. And I know a lot of your listeners are, are in tune with all this stuff, but just, again, education is important. Even though I, I told my kids they don't have to go to college, I told them that they could not quit learning. You know, education doesn't stop mm-hmm. when you graduate from high school. It, it's a lifelong process. Good thought. Um, if somebody wants to learn more about what you're doing or reach out or, or contact you, is there somewhere, any, anything you'd like to plug? or? or... Yep. Uh, we do not currently have a website. So uh, if you have any questions or would like to visit with me, you can sure reach me by email. And that's BJ Munger, M U N G E R, at threeriver.net. And that's spelled out T H R E E river.net. Otherwise, uh, awesome. email me and, and we can have a chat. Awesome. Perfect. Thanks so much, Brian. Really appreciate you coming on today. Appreciate it, Jared. Thanks for all the work that you do. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Pharaoh Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Farrow Cattle Company at farrowcattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.